welcome to Book to Book, a literary podcast brought to you by Faber and Faber Publishers. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Sue Prido. I recently met Sue to talk to her about her new book, I Am Dynamite, A Life of Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, which overturns many received ideas about the man and his work. Yes, some aspects of his thought alienate us today. It can be uncompromising, elitist, what one contemporary referred to as aristocratic radicalism, much to Nietzsche's satisfaction. And it's hard to entirely forget his posthumous misappropriation by the Nazis. But the Nietzsche Sue gives us is a man of flesh and blood. His 56 years on earth were marked by an unusual degree of suffering, both mental and physical. But he was capable of humour and self-awareness. Not the austere sage, but all too human, to borrow his own phrase, a failed composer, unhappy in love, as well as one of the great masters of German thought. We'll return to Friedrich Nietzsche. In this podcast, we also ask our guests to talk about a favourite book that they regularly return to. Sue chose a short work by another tiring 19th-century intellectual, the one who was in almost every way unlike Nietzsche, Charles Darwin. I've chosen a tiny, tiny, tiny book. It's a Penguin 60s classic, Charles Darwin, The Galapagos Islands. And it was published by Penguin in 1995. And why I love it is it only cost 60p, and it is about... 10 centimetres by about 12 centimetres, about 50 pages, very, very thin indeed. So it's sort of like the size of a small envelope and you can fit it into your pocket. And I like a walking book, I like a book that you can fit into your pocket. But in those 50 pages is the kernel of probably the most important thought of the 19th going on to the 20th and 21st century. It's in 1835 and he visits the Galapagos Islands. He's only there for five weeks and there are something like 31 islands. He doesn't have proper scientific stuff with him. He says there are about 2,000 craters there. I'm not quite sure. I haven't actually counted them, you know, but about 2,000. And then he observes, you know, that on every island has distinct species. The famous thing of the finches have different shaped beaks, and the Galapagos tortoises have different shaped shells, according to the rainfall and according to what they're feeding on and so on and so forth. And he just, just records this totally unpretentiously, cleanly, clearly, And then it takes him about 25 years, actually, to work out the theory of evolution, you know, the origin of the species. Um, But it's just the most amazing thing to put in your pocket. (laughs) And Penguin Penguin have very cunningly sort of not flagged up quite how significant it is. There's There's no sort of crude underlining of, hey, this is going to really change <laughs> the shape of the future. Yeah. It's sort of, it's almost buried, isn't it? Yes. It's, it you know, you, if you were reading it very casually, you might, you might sort of just think, here are some naturalists' observations. And, yes. But then if you pause, you think, goodness, there is the seed of something momentous here. I, I guess we'll come on to talk about That's Nietzsche and his Begriffsbeben, the sort of um, concept quake. And it's, it's like a concept quake, isn't it? Buried it in the text. A very quiet concept quake, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's a terribly touching book. 
the way that he describes the absolute innocence of the animals. And, and so he says, you know, yes, you can kill, I think, ten finches in half an hour as they land on your hand. The thought of killing ten finches and the thought of the... Um, the Spaniards who've just just, arrived, just left in their boat, taking away 200 of the Galapagos turtles to feed them on the rest of their voyage. It's, it's a very, very different world, isn't it? Very different. There is a lot of killing in it. And, and in addition to, you, you sense it's a young man conscientiously recording his first major travels and, and become, you know, turning into a proper naturalist. Mm. But as you say, a lot of things which he took for granted like knocking songbirds from the air, yes. casual killing, yes. was very much taken as, as just how things were. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's also, he's fascinating about the people too, um, because he is actually admiring of the people. And he says, you know, when you, when you bathe next to it, he's on Tahiti, when a European bathes next to a Tahitian, the European just looks like a plant that's been bleached by a gardener, and how much more appealing their bodies are, which is quite interesting for someone, you know, at that time. And um, Isn't that, he's, he's non-judgmental, or if, he, or if he's judging, he's judging in a positive light. Uh, he is, but then he says, you know, I really want to, I want to, um, I want to understand um, the, the morals of these people, which I think coming from someone who's just knocked 10 birds on the head is pretty steep, really. But he doesn't sort of go further into that. But what amuses me very much is he um, comments on their tattoos, which he, which he finds very interesting and beautiful because they follow the body lines. But he says, you know, here, like in Paris, fashion is king because you can tell the old people have a certain sort of tattoo they tattoo people on their toes but that fashion's gone you know that that marks you as an old person and i think i think that's so extraordinary it's a kind of journalistic kind of comment isn't it and at the same time you see the nascent naturalist the nascent Mm. geologist the nascent nascent anthropologist all all things Mm. that are going to be major preoccupations because he's writing this in his 20s isn't he when Mm. he went off when he was in his early 20s and i think he comes back and it's a few years before it gets into print but he's still a, he's still a very much a young man isn't he mm. Mm. yeah why did you choose this rather than the the voyage of the beagle the, the big work from from which it comes do you think do you like the idea of short books and i guess um if you like nietzsche's writing then you, you are drawn oh, to things yeah. which which make a, a quick burst of um of an yes. impression I, uh, yes, I, uh, well, I love long books, I love short books. It kind of reminds me, one of, one of Nietzsche's aphorisms that, that I love is um, never trust a thought that occurs to you indoors. As a writer, I sit there indoors getting all knotted up for hours and days on end, and then you think, whoa, yeah, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, and then you go out for a walk, and, you know, you're, you're amongst a herd of cows or, you know, you're under the, the clouds or a hillside or something. You think, no, actually, no, it doesn't, doesn't stand the test. And I think this is a marvellous book because, A, you can take it in your pocket and read it under a tree without it being terribly heavy. Um, and B, um, it expands every horizon you have, really. And he was lucky, wasn't he, to have had such an early visit to such a unique ecosystem. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then working out the whole thing that, you know, because, because the islands had the small animals in common, 
that small animals had floated, floated on rafts of vegetation from South America. You know, he says all the islands are American. I mean, that's the most amazing observation, isn't it? Do, do we know if Nietzsche read Darwin or knew of him only secondhand or what, what his sort of... Um... Well, um, he, he was 14, I think, when The Origin of Species was published and he was at school. But, of course, Nietzsche's English was, was never good at all. And in Germany, it was Lange who really sort of um, spread Darwin's ideas I think to, to the extent that he comments on it, which he doesn't much, you know, there's quite a contemptuous survival of the fittest for what? Just to survive? You know, that's not terribly interesting, is it, really? Also, it implies, survival of the fittest, I think, to him at least, implies more that fate plays a larger part than free will possibly and I think he's a bit keener on free will, really. Let, let's make, let's make a, a shift over now to, to, to your own mm. book, I Am Dynamite, um, the, the biography of, of Friedrich Nietzsche. You, you mentioned his, um, his background a little there, you alluded to his, his background. Can you say a little bit more about the milieu in which he, he grew up? Because it clearly shaped him in quite significant and quite lasting ways. Very much so, yes. I mean, he was born in um, 1844, um, and his father was a, a pastor in a very, very small hamlet. It was really sort of almost an extended sort of manor farm, really, with, with a sort of fortress church. His mother was a pastor's daughter. His father was very, very musical, and Nietzsche was the eldest son. Then, a couple of years later... Um, a couple of years later comes Elizabeth, and maybe a year later comes little brother Joseph. So it was really sort of idyllic, um, his, um, listening to a lot of music, because his father was a marvellous organist and played a lot of Bach. And then when Nietzsche's about three, his father develops um, these weird sort of intervals when he is, well, he's sort of in a trance, really. Anyway becomes insanity for a year and um, the poor man loses his eyesight and loses everything and eventually dies when Nietzsche's four. Then Nietzsche has a, has a strange dream and Nietzsche is pretty anti-supernatural sort of person as, you know, as he grows up. But he records this dream and this dream is obviously very important and he dreams that his father the grave opened, the father comes out in the grave clothes and comes and collects little brother Joseph. And shortly afterwards, little brother Joseph dies. And that made an impression on Nietzsche. But anyway, he really grew up with his mother and his sister Elizabeth, him being the only man of the house. And the expectation was that he would be his father all over again. He would become a clergyman. And the aim of the Nietzsche household was that they would all be reunited in heaven with the dead father. So there was that weight of expectation on him of following in the, in the family, the father uh, and the grandfather's so, footsteps. Also, later in his life, this sort of fear, this sort of sense of 
His father died at 35, suffered very poor health, suffered from insanity. That sort of sense of that, that, that destiny perhaps also being something that was lying in wait for him because, of course, he suffered from very poor health throughout his life. Very much so, yes. No, and I, I think, um, I think he, he really felt that he had to um, get on with things pretty quickly. He, he, he was convinced that he would, he would die at about the same age. He couldn't believe that he would survive till his 40th birthday. So he starts off really accepting that, that sort of destiny of joining the church, at least when, he, when he's very young. But by the age of 12, he's already showing heretical signs, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, he is already, he's already thinking. He speculates about the Holy Trinity and he, he thinks, well, you know, I'm not sure about this Father, Son and Holy Ghost thing because everything must contain its antithesis in order to exist. So I actually think it's Father, Son and Devil. Um, and this, of course, is a heresy. And so he can't actually sort of tell his mum about that for some time. <laughs> but he does write to his sister Elizabeth saying, you know, if you want to be happy, believe. But if you, you know... Um, Surely the truth is much more interesting, so explore. And he goes off to this, this boarding school, which you mm. call semi-military, semi-monastic. Mm. It sounds like it's got a punishing regime. Can you just sort of... What, 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 what kind of values and what, what kind of methods are they using um, on these boys? Well, um, to start with, it, it was an old monastery. And so it's, they're, they're very, it's a very enclosed world. It's a very self-sufficient world. And so um, they're really kept away from the present day. And no newspapers are allowed, you know, nothing, nothing to interfere with their classical education. And they're encouraged to speak Greek and Latin to each other all day, um, <laughs> which must have been rather exhausting, really. It's really the classics are completely it, uh, classics and philology. And that's what he becomes good at. He's hopeless at mathematics. He can never get mathematics together at all. And he, you say he took to it. He took to it to such an extent that if we jump ahead a few years, he becomes the youngest professor ever appointed at, at Basel University. Professor of philology. Now, maybe that was a way of escaping the theological path, but it's not philosophy, and people may be surprised that, that he is appointed as a philologist. Perhaps as a first step, you could just say what a 19th century philologist's preoccupations were. Well, he was a classical philologist, and it's the philology of, of the classical languages, of Greek and Latin, that he'd been speaking all the way through school, and it's really the science of, of, of the languages, just that, really. Nietzsche's relationship with Richard Wagner was one of the most important of his life. It began when the philosopher was 24 and the composer in his mid-50s. I asked Sue to tell me more about it. Well, um, to start on a very sort of, you know, mundane level, Wagner was the same age as his father would have been. Um, Wagner was a tremendous musician. <laughs> silly thing to say, but of course he was. As Nietzsche's father was... And, I mean, it was Wagner's music that absolutely spoke to his soul. It was, if Nietzsche wanted to go to a sublime place, 
it would be listening to Wagner's music, as it is for me, I have to say. I did, I did put him on while I was reading your book at some point, and I did wonder if you, if you had him in the background or maybe in the foreground. I never have background or foreground, I'm afraid. I have to operate in silence, which is too sad. But um, if I'm, you know, if I've, if I've got time to myself, um, yeah. Or, indeed, I even go to Bayreuth. Ah. A, whole, a whole other, a whole other can of worms. <laughs> now, I guess, I guess, for a young man like Nietzsche, sensitive, artistic, intellectual, to to sort of fall in in love with the whole world of Wagner was understandable. But why, when Wagner must have had so many people petitioning for his time and his attention, why did this this young philology professor, rather rather shy man, why, why did he make such an impression and really become part of the inner circle for many years? Well, first of all, the two of them were mad about Schopenhauer, and that was rather unusual in those days. Um, you know, he, he wasn't taught in universities and so on and so forth. His theory of will and representation elevated music really as the sort of state where both will and representation could sort of come together. So both Wagner and Nietzsche adoring music, Schopenhauer was pretty sort of spot on. Wagner always loved anyone who loved his music, but at that time, he was coming to the end of writing The Ring Cycle, a sort of 20-year-old project, and he really needed to get this staged, um, because there's no point in spending 20 years writing four operas and it never being performed. And it wasn't just going to be a touring production. He, he, wanted, he wanted his own theatre. He, he, well, he wasn't thinking small. He, well, he needed his own theatre because um, it has a vast orchestra and none of the sort of Baroque theatres in the little German principalities were, were big. Baroque or Rococo were really big enough for it and the acoustics were wrong. And so Wagner really had to build his own theatre and he was very interested in the idea of recreating a classical amphitheatre and the acoustics that that would produce. And of course, this needed a fair amount of money. But um, luckily, King Ludwig of Bavaria was bankrolling the whole thing. But Wagner didn't really have anyone intellectually respectable to fight his battles for him. And he felt that Nietzsche, as a young, the youngest professor of philology at Basel University, was going to be quite a figure. And so he, um, you know, he wanted Nietzsche on board. Nietzsche was a very willing passenger, I have to say. Nietzsche was the only other person, apart from King Ludwig, who was given his own room in Wagner's house. And he, he really did become almost like a, a son, didn't he, to the family, he sort of filled in that missing generation, because Wagner's children with Cosima were really, you know, the, the age gap was sufficient to be grandchildren age. Yes, yes. But he, but he did fill, fulfil that filial kind of role. And I guess, like so many sons, in time he would come to rebel against the father, wouldn't he? And, and how? Yes, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's like an episode out of the ring cycle, really, isn't it? You know, you kill your father and on you go. Yeah. On you go, but he can't even, you know, at the very end of his productive life, before he goes insane, even then, you know, he's, shortly before that, he's still sending to the printer works which are returning to the question of, of Wagner. So what was it? It was more, clearly more than just a, a sort of interpersonal 
issue that he was working at was something about what Wagner stood for, what he represented, that Nietzsche kept going back to and kept having to tussle with. It's, it's the argument that we all have between head and heart, isn't it? The heart is with Wagner's music. The head, of course, um, Nietzsche grew away from Wagner as Wagner remained Schopenhauerian, believing in this these weird sort of, sort of platonic thing of there's a world of will out there and our world is only a world of representation. And Nietzsche thought this was nonsense. Also, of course, um, uh, Wagner was very, very anti-Semitic and uh, Nietzsche was infected by this for a short time while he was friendly with Wagner, but afterwards he rarely, rarely turns and he loathes anti-Semitism and he also loathes nationalism. Um, he says, you know, Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles, that is the end of all German philosophy. And so they, um, so they parted company, really, intellectually, and of course, um, in, um, when is it, I think it's 18, yeah, 1878, something like that, um, when Wagner has finished the Ring Cycle, and that's all okay, and um, he writes Parsifal, which is a very Christian piece, and um, Nietzsche has just written his first sort of free-thinking book, his sort of human all too human, um, which really is criticizing and rejecting Christianity. And Wagner sends the libretto of Parsifal to Nietzsche, and he sends a, a, a manuscript and he say, of, of human all too human, and Nietzsche describes it as two rapiers crossing in midair. And, um, well, you know, they're, they're, they're believing very different things. Their, their roads are diverging. And apart from this realm of ideas, which we've just been talking about, one of the things I loved about your book was the, was the, the detail of everyday life. For example, this is going to stick in my mind, Wagner getting... Nietzsche to buy silk underwear for him, not just once. That, and Nietzsche having to steal himself to go into the shop. And I, I can't remember exactly what he says, but something like, you know, when you, when you adore someone or something, well, you've once, got... Once you have chosen your God, you must adorn him. And, and he's saying that with his tongue in his cheek, okay. I guess. But, it, but it's, such a funny, it's such a funny scene to picture him feeling embarrassed before he goes in to buy the maestro his underpants. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think he's thrilled because it's a sort of domestic touch. And, you know, his mother and his sister worship, you know, Nietzsche, the only man in the family. But Wagner just says, oh, go out and buy me underpants, you know. And so it's a lovely sort of intimacy with the Wagners that he has, that he has with nobody else, really, I think. But Wagner's going to overstep the mark in a way that, quite apart from all the intellectual disagreements, I guess really, really affronted and embarrassed um, yes. Nietzsche, and may, and may have been, if not the the only cause, certainly the proximate cause for their for their big breach. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. And <laughs> Wagner was always very, um, very bossy, very controlling. He thought he could control the world. You know, after all, he'd sort of written a whole world in the Ring Cycle, and dear Nietzsche had terrible eyesight um, from when he was very young from when he was at school he had the most blinding headaches that would keep him in bed for a week or you know and um, when he went out he'd have to wear a green eye shade and glasses with smoked lenses to shelter his eyes from the light 
And so anyway, Wagner, you know how it was at that time. People thought, oh, masturbation causes blindness. So um, Wagner thought, well, mm, gosh, maybe that's it. So he wrote to his doctor saying, look, you've got to examine Nietzsche. You know, I, I think this it just could be too much masturbation. You know, maybe if he gets married, it'll be all right. And um, of course, Nietzsche discovers this letter and is so humiliated and hurt and horrified and that, you know, you can't really go back from there, can you? You describe Nietzsche as looking impish. And I think you use that word more than once about him. It's not, it's not a word I would have associated, perhaps just thinking, you know, thinking of the rather austere portraits that we have of him and, and hearing some of his pronouncements. But your book reveals that he was far from being a, you know, a two-dimensional character. Well, he does say... Uh, words to the effect of, I fear that I'm going to be seen as a prophet. I would rather be a buffoon than a prophet. And he talks very much about the dance of life, you know. So, um, yeah, you've got to dance. And, and even though he wasn't a, a man of material things, he, he, and didn't care about his clothes particularly, he was aware that his moustache had an effect. It wasn't, it wasn't an innocent... He, he knew that the moustache said something. What, was, what did he think it was saying? Where is that? Can I just find that moustache? Yes. What he says is about his moustaches. The gentlest, most reasonable man may, if he wears a large moustache, sit as it were in its shade and feel safe. As the accessory of a large moustache, he will give the impression of being military, irascible and sometimes violent, and will be treated accordingly. So it's a great, it's a great shelter for, for a shy man. <laughs> So how much damage do you think to his posthumous reputation was done first by his sister, who was, as I think you said, a fairly full-on, rabid, anti-Semite, New, New Germania kind of, kind of person, and really controlled how his posthumous reputation was, was shaped in, in, the, in the years immediately after, the decades immediately after his death? I'm so thrilled because every good book needs a villain and we've got a really good villain in her. Uh, no, because she was a couple of years younger than him. And she was really all her life. She was, she was uh, virulently nationalist and virulently anti-Semitic. And she married a sort of nationalist anti-Semitic um, agitator called Bernard Furster. And they went off to Paraguay to found a pure-blooded Aryan colony where no, where no sort of um, Jewish blood had polluted the earth. You know, ghastly people. And the colony founded, and um, he, the husband, um, committed suicide because, I mean, it was mired in debt and fraud and everything. And then um, Elizabeth comes back and Nietzsche then um, is insane. She comes back in I think 89 or 90 and he, he has completely lost his mind. I mean and when you say insane you know it's he can't, he can't really. He writes down his name and he says I am Professor Nietzsche, I am Professor Nietzsche but he can't remember if he's written any books, he's you know he's incontinent, the whole thing is absolutely ghastly. So she takes charge of him. By this time, his books, his philosophy, are, it's, it's very popular now, which it wasn't, you know, um, when he was in his sane years. So then she gathers up. There's this enormous 
amount of paperwork all over the place. And she gathers it up and she gathers up the letters and, you know, scraps of this and scraps of that. And she forms the Nietzsche archive in Weimar. And she puts her um, cousin, who is an early national socialist, in charge of the, of the Nietzsche archive. And she really fills it with national socialists. And she um, puts out, she forges probably about 30 letters, but everyone's still sort of sorting out you know, the forgeries and things. She delays publication of his own autobiography, OK Homo, um, and, and cuts it a bit where he's been a bit rude about her and um, their mother. And she puts out a two-volume biography of Nietzsche, which, you know, conforms to her own ideas, really. Um, and then she puts out The Will to Power in 1907. That's seven years after he's died. And that's just from bits and pieces in the archive that she's kind of knitted together with her own ideas. And it's sort of 400-ish aphoristic paragraphs. And it's such a success that a couple of years later, she puts out an expanded edition of the book, which is like more like 1400. And it's only really here. It's a most unpleasant book, actually, very, very different to anything that he wrote. And it's only in in this that you get, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, the word the master race, um, you know, that appears, I, I think, for the first time there, because it's a, absolutely not a Nietzschean concept at all. But that was all clearly designed to appeal to and did appeal to the Nazis. And then, yeah. of course, his his reputation was, was tarnished by that for, for some time. So. Very, very much so. And, of course, Elizabeth was a great fan of Mussolini's, and she corresponded with Mussolini, and she put on a play by Mussolini in the Weimar National Theatre in, oh gosh, what year was it? Was it 33? It might have been 33, yes, I think that's right. And Hitler, who's not yet Chancellor, but will be Chancellor, comes and visits her in the theatre with his stormtroopers, and he presents her with a huge bunch of red roses and marvellous stuff. And, um, and then her relationship with Hitler starts. She presents him with Nietzsche's walking stick and he has his photograph taken by Nietzsche's bust. And then eventually when Elizabeth dies, um, he actually comes to her funeral where she is hailed as the mother of the nation along with Cosima Wagner, which is quite funny. Um, what, what a pair. <laughs> what a pair. Because Cosima's quite a piece of work herself, isn't she? She is quite a piece of work herself. But, but I mean, the thing about Elizabeth is she didn't only forge Nietzsche's texts and sort of letters and books and things and, incidentally, be nominated by the Nazis five times for the Nobel Prize, but she also forged a second um, death mask of Nietzsche, which I have a photograph in the book. It's never, it's, I, I got the two photographed side by side, especially, because a death mask was taken, which she didn't feel was sufficiently impressive. And so she got another one faked up. And, um, and that was the death march that she gave around. I mean, it's Soviet in, in behavior, isn't it? You know, it's like sort of Lenin's embalmers, isn't it, really? So, so she really had charge of the Nietzsche legacy and indeed the Nietzsche, you know, copyright, everything that came out of the Nietzsche archive from really 1890 
1935, when she dies, is all under the aegis of the anti-Semitic, very, very nationalist Elizabeth. And when you leave, as, as Nietzsche did, a huge nachlas, but don't have time or um, the capacity to, to go through it and, and order it, then you're obviously vulnerable to that kind of misappropriation. But also because Nietzsche was so anti-system building, and because he, he did communicate in ways that were aphoristic and often quite opaque, I wanted really to, to conclude by saying, I mean, that, that has both been a misfortune, but also I guess it's what has enabled him to endure. And as you said, and as I did, having him in, in our pockets when we were teenagers, there's something about that, you know, that, that dynamite quality that you've got in your title that, although he was, he's been misused, the way he presented his thought has, has enabled it to, for him to still be the kind of writer that people get excited about and get impassioned about or argue about. Yeah, and that in fact is why I chose that title, because Nietzsche had very, very few reviews in his own lifetime. He had to self-publish most of his books, but there was one review that he was absolutely delighted about. It was the time when they were building the St. Gotthard Tunnel through the Alps, and the reviewer says, you cannot criticise the dynamite that blasts the tunnel through the St. Gotthard. You can't say that it's that the explosion is either for good or for evil. It is simply an effect. It can be for good or for evil. And the quality of Nietzsche's book is exactly the same, the quality of his thought. This is, this is dynamite. And Nietzsche was so excited about this, that was when he wrote, I'm not a man, I'm dynamite. <laughs> but yes, it's ambiguous. It can be taken both ways, for better or worse. I was talking to Sue Prido about her book, I Am Dynamite, A Life of Friedrich Nietzsche, which is available now in hardback. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. The book Sue talked about at the start of the podcast is The Galapagos Islands by Charles Darwin, published as a Penguin 60 in 1995. That book is now out of print, though it's still to be found in second-hand bookshops. Failing that, its contents appear as chapters 19 and 20 of Voyage of the Beagle, available in Penguin Classics. That's all for this programme, so until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>